session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. So didn't do a Monday show because here in the United States, it was a national holiday, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. So I will be uh, doing the book review today, and I'll also announce this week's book of the week. It's Hard to Break by Russell A. Poldrack. Hard to Break, Why Our Brains Make Habits Stick. And uh, Russell Poldrack is a neuroscientist at Stanford, and so um, this is a new book. I've done several books on habits and things like that, but I think here he's going to go deeper into the brain, looking at how it explains why habits uh, stick and are so hard to break. So look forward to reading that and sharing it with you on Monday's show. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about today is Becoming Human by Michael Tomasello, Becoming Human, A Theory of Ontogeny. And, And this is one of those books... That can be hard to get through, especially in a week, because it's um, it was kind of on on the longer side, but also very dense, written in an academic format, but very interesting ideas presented throughout an understanding humans and what differentiates us from other animals, but especially to our closest relatives, uh, great apes, chimpanzees, bonobos, and how we can understand how we've become what we've become, a theory of ontogeny. How do we evolve into becoming human? It really also means we have to try to understand what it means um, to be human. And Michael Tomasello has done decades of research on these fields of evolutionary psychology and evolutionary developmental psychology. Uh, He has done, I think, 19, 20 years at the Max Planck Institute in Leipzig, I think, in Germany. That's where he was, but also a professor at Duke. And so uh, it's interesting reading this this book throughout every chapter. There's a lot of these research studies looking at comparing babies, often infants and toddlers, and also to apes, chimpanzees, to see what uh, they're capable of doing and what they're not capable of doing. When do things seem to arise developmentally in the human lifespan. And those are interesting to read, these these studies of trying to, and of course the researchers have to be creative, how do we create a paradigm where we can test some kind of thinking or ability in babies? That could be tough, but then also even more challenging at times in in animals, in chimpanzees. Um, And we also have to be aware that when we're looking at these types of issues, the biases that are involved, so, of course, we are humans studying humans, and so there's going to be biases there. Of course, we can't see that we are seeing ourselves through a certain lens, but of course that's going to be happening. And then also when we're looking at animals, we're looking at it from that lens as well, but also can make it complicated when we um, do research. He, he did bring up near the end of the book some potential 
objections or issues people have or things that need to be thought about and looked at in the research. And one of them is, you know, this idea that some people will bring up that he mentions that, well, when we're studying babies, let's say, human infants and um, chimpanzees, let's say, when they're interacting with us, the baby is interacting with the same species, whereas the chimpanzee is not. So that itself might have impacts and effects that we're not aware of in how they interact. So I was imagining if, you know, dogs were studying us, maybe they are, maybe we don't know all of your dogs are out there. And when they see each other on the street, they're not just sniffing each other, they're also exchanging data. And maybe they just think we're really stupid because of the stuff that we do. Like, I can't believe he doesn't know how to do this. I can't believe she doesn't know how to do that. So when we're studying uh, another animal, we have to be aware there's lots of things that come up um, with that. Now, trying to understand things that make us human, we do have to look at our evolutionary past and understand where, where we came from, what we went through, what were the challenges that early humans faced, and what made us become um, what we consider human or become this, this separate species. And so our ancestors likely had to face some challenges as they uh, left the, the forests and went into the savannas or in different ways. They had to face these challenges that required us to become much more collaborative. It seems that the type of survival that we had made us much more interdependent on one another. And this had a huge impact in becoming human and becoming what we are still today, what created our human biology and psychology was this collaborative necessity, that interdependence. And we still see that. And even when we at times think about human well-being and strength and what you want to become, there's often this push towards independence. And sometimes people think the strongest thing is to be completely independent. Where actually people who are trying to be so independent, it's often because they are afraid of relationships, afraid of getting hurt, uh, of not having control, because when you're in a relationship, you can't, of course, control another person. And so they're choosing this complete independence, not out of really strength, but out of this fear more than anything. And of course, dependence, um, once you're past a young age, that's an issue as well. And often the case is when we see something unhealthy, we think the healthy thing is to do the opposite. So if being so dependent is weak and not good, being completely independent is strong when it's, it's not true. It's somewhere in the middle, which in this case would be interdependence, that we need each other. And so this seems to be a very important part of human psychology that uh, Michael Tomasello argues in this book and keeps bringing up this point of joint intentionality, this way that we do things together. So shin and then joint intentionality, I'm sure. Um, that phrase, joint intentionality, came up in the book hundreds of times. Uh, it was very commonly um, cited as something that was significant in understanding human psychology, the sense of we that we have and how that affects us. And I'll talk a bit about that. Now, um, in looking at human development, uh, he talks about a nine-month revolution, that it seems that at nine months of age, uh, human babies start to be able to experience some things, a lot of new things, almost all at once. Of course, it's not going to be all at one moment, but in this short period, which is why it's called the nine-month revolution, where they can now interact in ways that they could not 
before. So before that, we have something he, he called, uh, it's referred to as, I think, proto-conversations, which is essentially where a baby and, let's say, a mother, father, or, you know, some adult, they can look at each other and there's kind of a mimicking, but it's not just mimicking. There's a back and forth, you know. The mother smiles at the baby, the baby smiles back, and then the mother responds to that. And there's some back and forth that we see is actually, it is quite natural. And because of that, it's actually quite important that it's done in a certain way. Um, they've done research, one where either through uh, using a camera of some sort, or actually they ask the mother to make a completely flat face, like no affect. And it's actually heartbreaking. You see the child first trying to keep get the mother's attention again. She, the, the baby feels something is wrong. And then over time they protest, and then they might cry for a bit, and then they give up, um, which is really heartbreaking. You get the sense that, well, if it's, I'm not going to be attuned, there isn't going to be this connection, I might as well give up on, on trying. They've also done studies where they'll have mother and baby in different rooms, and they'll have cameras, and sometimes they'll have the timing be right, so they're actually responding in real time. Sometimes they'll add a little delay, and that delay makes the child feel off. They start to get frustrated. They don't feel good. So it's just a slight delay in the responses, but there is such an attunement and such a type of uh, dance that we do together unconsciously that when it's a little bit off, um, it doesn't feel quite right. And actually, this is very relevant to what we've been going through these last two years in the pandemic, where we've moved a lot of our interactions to Zoom and FaceTime and different types of meetings. And when there is a slight delay, which often can be the case if there's some kind of technical glitch, internet types of issues, it makes it very hard to connect. And I've felt this in my therapy sessions before with clients where thankfully, usually the connection is okay, hopefully both emotionally, but in this case, I meant internet wise. Um, but when it is a little bit off, it could be so hard to feel a sense of connection and build some momentum. Even if there's some delay in the, the uh, video and the audio, it makes it very hard for us to connect. And so if communication and things that happen, we do it automatically without thinking that when it's a little bit off or breaks down, we, we notice it, which is often the case when something physically in our body is healthy. We don't notice it when we get sick or injured. We realize how much we value that thing. So um, we see that this starts in that younger age. Um, infants will have these kinds of proto-conversations. And part of that is also that human infants because of how we develop, they often had to, in, a, in essence, comp compete with other babies or kids of their age for attention to survive. And so um, there is this survival or evolutionary push towards children attuning more with the caregivers to get more love and care and be taken care of. And those babies that were able to do that, of course, were more likely to survive. And, and that's going to be passed on. And that's something that we see. So there is this pressure in that sense evolutionarily for children to bond with their caregivers from a, a young age. But what we see start happening in this nine-month revolution, one of the interesting things is pointing, which seems like a, a minor thing, but it's quite interesting that at this age, all of a sudden, before that, they have a hard time understanding because pointing seems like something very trivial. Okay, I'm pointing at something. But this is, in a way, one of the first um, instances of shared attention. Because when I point at something, what I'm saying is there's something I want you to attend to, and now we attend to it together. Either I think it's something you'll find interesting, maybe as a, as a baby, it might be something they want. So they might point and say, eh, eh, like, I want that thing. Can you bring it to me? Um, but pointing 
which might seem minor, is actually quite significant. And we see that uh, apes, chimpanzees, they don't do things like pointing. They don't point to get your attention. And often, if you point, they don't understand why you're pointing. They might follow your gaze. So look at what you're looking at. If you all of a sudden say, look up, they might look up too. But they won't understand. They won't do it themselves pointing, and they won't point to you. Or they won't show you something. You know, kids will you know, have a toy and they show it to you. And there's a way they show it to you. It's not like really they know you know it's there, but it's a way of kind of sharing a moment with you, right? Like, oh, I'm playing with this toy. It's fun. Or I like this toy. We're kind of putting those words in their mouth, so to speak. But that's kind of what they are doing. So pointing, you know, is this first type of thing that they point. And if you notice, most kids, they will point with that index finger. I've actually seen my cousin's baby, Colette. If you um, follow me on Instagram, you'll see that she often is in my stories and things. I'm a big fan of her. Um, but I see now, now she'll, in the last few months, she'll point and show me things. Or when I come over, there's this way of trying to, I think, get my attention or be connected to me that she'll point to things outside or inside. Just say, hey, look at this, look at that. Um, I think it's interesting. Persians, as we've we get older, sometimes they tend to point with their middle finger. I don't know if they want the point to be even more further extended or if there's some indirect message there, but uh, we tend to point in different ways somehow. But nonetheless, we see this index finger point become this way of sharing attention. Me and you um, can look at this together, have this experience together, and that itself creates bonding. When we think of what creates emotional bonding in a relationship, essentially it comes down to these sharing of experiences. Experiences doesn't mean we go do something together, but even just moment to moment, interactions and experiences, they build a relationship. So we see this foundation there. And so this ability to share attention on something is a very important part of understanding human psychology and our development. Um, And so also, if we look at other aspects of it, it's things like working on something together. Joint intentionality is where that comes in, is that we're trying to work on something together. And as we work on something together, let's say you and I both have to carry something. And the tasks might be different that we both have to do, but there's a way we enter a joint agreement that we know that, okay, we're going to move this thing. I have to pick up this side. You have to pick up that side. I'm doing my part, but I can understand your part as well. And you understand your part, you can understand mine. And we also know that if we're committing to this, we are both expecting that we're going to see it through till the end. We enter some kind of a Sometimes, let's say, before unspoken contracts, sometimes it's spoken. And because of that, we also hold each other accountable. And this contributes to the development of things like some of the moral values that we have. That not only do I look at you and say, you better do what you have to do, but I know that I'm accountable by this agreement that we've made. So by creating this unspoken contract, we are essentially saying, we are going to do this together. I'm going to do my part. You're going to do your part. If I don't do my part, I even will want to punish myself. And actually even feelings of things like guilt can come from this or shame that we internalize this sense of doing something wrong, doing something that we know goes against the social code and social norms or this contract that we have created. And so starting with this joint intentionality, which might just be between two people, this starts to extend and and develop into a more group type of norms and things of that nature. So here we start to understand the development of culture and why we do things a certain way and why it matters that we do it a certain way. Because as I've understood, and before I saw it in this context, we know that culture isn't just about 
language or food and music preferences and things like that. It's about a right and wrong way of living. And you feel that, you know, if you think of Iranians and our culture, we say, well, if you have to do it this way, if you don't, it's wrong. It just feels so wrong because it starts to get ingrained in this way of this is how we do it and not doing it that way is wrong. It just feels not okay. And other people might do it this other way, and we tend to judge them for that if we don't become more open-minded because we're doing it the right way. Uh, and so the book was fascinating in exploring these dimensions of trying to understand how did human culture develop. So it's looking at the human species, how it develops, but also then looking at an individual child and how they go through this developmental process that makes them into a human and then over time they can become part of the human the human culture in the group uh, as they become um, rational which makes them reasonable and also moral which makes them responsible so when they're reasonable and responsible which he says is around the age of six or seven that they start having those types of capabilities then they can be looked at in a different way and this is also why schooling tends to begin at this time we feel that they are ready uh, to enter this type of role in society. So uh, the book is is interesting. If you really like an academic overview of understanding human evolution from a psychological perspective, I would highly recommend it. Let's go to our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 310-441-0555. Uh, in the previous segment, I was talking about Michael Tomasello's book, Becoming Human, A Theory of Ontogeny, and um, making a maybe not so smooth, but transition when we think about evolution and we think about survival and survival of the fittest. Uh, I had a conversation today, but uh, it's a theme that comes up a lot when we think of people that we uh, sometimes will say they're in survival mode or they had to live a lot of their life in survival mode. And so if in childhood you experienced different types of hardships and challenges, whether they were physical threats to your well-being, living in through war, living through um, some uh, poverty or different types of experiences that made survival something scary or feeling uncertain, but also if you emotionally had to feel like you were surviving and you barely had to make it through. When you go through that, you tend to learn how to survive, and you actually learn that life is about surviving. Can I just get through this? Can I figure out a way? Can I tolerate this? Can I figure out a strategy that makes me live and not die? And unfortunately, as is the case with all of us, whatever strategies we start to learn early in life, we tend to apply them the rest of our lives. It just seems like the right thing to do. So, um, you know, I thought of this analogy before uh, this week. It was this thought of, you know, imagine if you lived in a home and there was always a lot of smoke, so it was not safe to breathe. You had to crawl really low and you were always crawling around. And now you're no longer in that house where there's smoke, but you still crawl around in life because you are still have this feeling that it's not safe to stand and breathe. I'll die, I'll get un it'll be unhealthy, so I have to crawl, even though you're in a completely different environment where the smoke is no longer there. And that's what we all do in, in emotional ways. I can't get close to people because they're going to hurt me. I can't say what I want to say because people get mad. I can't share certain feelings because people won't like me or love me, even though those people that made us feel that way might not be 
no, no longer might be in our life or we might be interacting with different people, we still will carry that with us, unfortunately. And, um, you know, something that has definitely shifted my understanding of so much of human psychology is understanding the brain as a predictive machine. We again here can see how much it makes sense if in those early, very formative years, you had these experiences, it makes sure makes sense that the brain is then going to integrate that and everything you experience is seen through that lens. This is safe. This is unsafe. Even though it doesn't mean it's based on some external reality, it's based on the internal reality that you have experienced. And it can be very hard to challenge and change that. And so when I was talking to someone actually this morning, um, a colleague, and realizing that often when we're living in survival mode, what we tend to think is if we're going to be okay, you know, and even if you ask someone, how are you doing? Oh, I'm okay. As long as we're okay, when you think of survival, well, that's good. That's a success because all you're thinking is not dying of making it through. And so people who have this mindset, they're all often very good at tolerating things, tolerating pain, tolerating discomfort, whether it's in relationships or not relationships, feeling lonely, uh, a job they don't like, whatever it might be, they get good at tolerating things because it's about survival. And so if you're surviving something, there's no need to change it. At least I'm okay. And so okay, uh, you know, there's that book, I'm okay, you're okay, which is, I think, a good type of okay. But this type of okay that I'm talking about now is when we settle in our lives and we stay in a comfort zone. So if life is just about survival, surviving is winning. Rather than realizing you can be thriving and living, and you don't have to still feel that you're in that, that place. So if you feel this way, I'll start with this message. You deserve more than to be just okay. You deserve more in your life. You can have more in your life. And to do that, you're going to have to go into that discomfort, go out of your comfort zone and go into where it feels anxious. But the first step is recognizing I don't deserve to just stay in survival mode. I'm stronger than I was then, and my life is different than it was then. I can create something different now. And so um, this reminds me of the um, serenity prayer, which is very powerful, I think. So God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. So I think that's a very um, powerful message for life. There's some things you can't change, and the more you can accept those things, the better. And there are things you can change, and the more you can actually have the courage to change those things, the better as well. And knowing the difference, that's where you have to have that wisdom, which can be very difficult, is very hard. Now, interestingly, I actually just Googled the serenity prayer before I came on for this segment, and on the Wikipedia page, it's apparently the person who wrote it, Reinhold Niebuhr, probably saying that wrong, N-I-E-B-U-H-R. He wrote it the other way where courage was first, the courage to change the things I can um, and the serenity to accept that which cannot be helped, which is interesting because we've switched that, at least the way I usually hear it. First, we're talking about accepting things. And so I think this is unfortunately where people in survival mode, that's how they operate, is that let me just accept everything and I'll be good. But we have to have that wisdom to know that there are some things that we can change. And what is it in your life that you can change to make better? That's the hard part for someone, especially who's been through challenges, but really for all of us. We're all so good at being in our comfort zones and making excuses for that. Well, one is, yeah, I'm okay. Why would I, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I th I'm always amazed by 
humans' abilities to justify doing whatever they want to do. And we can come up with these, you know, different adages or pieces of advice that we've heard that sound good. Well, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? But that also means if you're really, you know, not feeling that good in your life or it could be much better, you're not going to do anything about it. So it doesn't necessarily mean if it ain't broke, don't fix it. It can be better. Why not make it better? And so we have to recognize where is it in our own lives that I'm choosing comfort. And I can assure you, whoever you are listening to right now, there are many areas of your life that you are living in your comfort zone, no matter who you are. We get into these spaces that feel okay, and we are afraid to challenge them. And to simplify it in another way, sometimes I'll tell clients, we tend to choose depression over anxiety. We tend to choose not being happy, not feeling okay, uh, not feeling great about something, thinking it'd be better than facing the uncertainty of putting ourselves out there, facing the uncertainty of what if I fail, what if I get hurt, what if it doesn't work out, I'm safe here. And from a a human or just a biological perspective, we can understand this mindset too, going back to the survival mode. Well, it's better to make sure you're alive than to die. So taking risks is always going to feel a bit scary. And that's how our psychology is going to be built to not push you out of something. If it's working, it's better at least stay alive. That's good than to risk it. Of course, for survival, you have to take risks to survive and pass on your genes in different ways. But there can be a tendency to go towards being safe, being comfortable. And so we have to recognize this itself is coming from our evolutionary past that we are no longer living in that uh, um, environment, which is kind of interesting. I was talking about our individual past that you maybe lived in a certain household and certain childhood that had experiences. But we have this mindset that pushes us away from trying things because it's this fear of something bad happening when really probably nothing bad is going to happen. You know, usually there's this uh, more of, I think, American thing of there's a monster underneath your bed, like a kid thinks there's a monster underneath their bed. And the longer you don't check under the bed, the monster keeps growing in your mind. The teeth get sharper, the claws get bigger and longer, and you worry more and more about uh, this monster. Then you look under your bed and you see nothing is there. Or if we kind of make it an analogy, it's a very small kind of thing that you can handle or manage. And in our lives, the same thing happens, unfortunately. The longer we don't face something, the longer we keep doing what's comfortable, the scarier doing the alternative becomes. The more hardened we become in doing things the way we, we have been doing it. And so coming back to individuals that have internalized this survival mindset, they can be incredibly good at tolerating things, which in that way is a strength, but their weakness is not in realizing that there's things they don't have to tolerate, that they can change, that when it comes to things in life, it's not just about, I can handle this, it's about what I want to do. Um, I work with clients sometimes and they'll, sometimes you recognize this as they're talking out loud about what they're going through in life and this has happened and, and you know, and I, I can do that. But the better question is, do you want to do that? Do you want that to happen? Yes, again, going back to the serenity prayer, if it's something you can't change, it's understandable to say, okay, I can handle that, I'll get through this. But oftentimes it's something that can uh, be done something about, something you can do something about that you're accepting. I can, okay, people are telling me to do this, and if you're a people pleaser and want to make sure people like you or not create conflict, say, okay, I can handle that. So that's survival mode. I don't want to create a conflict because that could get ugly, the person might get mad, the person might go away, I lose that relationship. So everything is about 
holding on, kind of almost like a hoarding. I don't want to lose what I already have because I'm just trying to survive and that's too scary to let it go. So if you look at yourself and look at your life, ask yourself, am I just accepting okay in areas where I can have more, I deserve to have more? Where in my life am I in the comfort zone? Where have I given up even thinking about what could be different? Because it could be scary to put ourselves out there, to challenge ourselves, to go into a relationship not knowing how it's going to end. So we choose the anxiety of being alone over the, I'm sorry, the depression or the sadness of being alone over the anxiety of getting close to someone because it feels too scary. We already think we know what's going to happen or afraid uh, of what can happen. So when you think of that serenity prayer, God, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Recognize that our tendency is often to think that what's happening is something we cannot change and not recognize we have much more courage and much more power to change things in our lives, but we have to be willing to face that anxiety and that uncertainty and put ourselves out there. All right, let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 3104410555. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello? Yes, hi. Thanks for calling. Dr. Halakwi? Yes, you're on the air. Yes, I thank you for your time. I sure. have a question. So I have, I'm 60 years old, coming from Northern California. I have a friend my age. Mm-hmm. Her 30-year-old son died in a car accident uh, six months ago. And a month after that, her husband committed suicide, <sighs> couldn't tolerate the loss of the son. Mm-hmm. Now, she's very depressed, very angry, but she's not willing to get help. And she's constantly saying, I'm giving up. I don't have any other hope. She has another son, 25-year-old, which is also local. And I keep telling that, you know, you need to think about your other son. And they have a dog. The dog is also depressed Hmm. due to the loss of the son and the father. I don't know what to do with her. She's not willing to say, you know, I don't want to go to see a shrink. They're all nonsense. So what can we do? I'm worried about her. Yeah, well, understandably, you're worried about her. Um, And the fact that she, you know, calls them shrinks probably shows some of her feeling about therapists in general. But nonetheless, looking at what she's been through, and you say, I don't know what to do. One of the things to realize is that there is only so much you can do or that you can only do very little, especially you can only do very little in in helping her feel good. It's going to be very, very painful. I mean, that's unbelievable pains of losing a child, which I think is the worst relational pain human beings can go through, uh, even though he was an adult child, but still that's terrifying and heartbreaking. And then to lose her husband after that as well and taking his life, that adds usually more to the grief. And you mentioned anger, so maybe she's angry with the world, with him, with, you know, so many things. And so we have to uh, also recognize how incredibly difficult what she's going through is um i really do hope she gets help now you said the the suicide was a month ago can you hear me hello i'm not sure if the caller is still there no 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 i 
Oh. Because I'm driving, I put you on mute. Oh, okay. So, uh, the, the son died in July. Yes. Uh, in June. The son died in mid-June, and uh, end of July, the father committed suicide, which was a big thing in our community. I see. California. Oh, a month after the passing. for everyone, but yeah. it's been a few months now. Okay. So that, a month after the he, the son passed. Okay. Um, you know, that that's just unbearable pain and even that word unbearable means that we can't handle it so we can understand that she's um suffering and struggling the way that she does i don't know you know it's part of it that she doesn't like therapy and therapists in general Mm -hmm. okay so that that makes it challenging well um, because you know she's very um very angry yeah everybody's telling well, it was destiny, God's will, it gets better. So that's why she's yeah. completely shut down everyone. So she doesn't really want to see anyone. Sometimes mm-hmm. she just talks to me over the phone. She's not willing to see anyone. I saw her one time. Um, she lost like 30 pounds. Mm-hmm. She looks really bad. But the fact that everyone's trying to comfort her. Yeah. And it's like nobody understands what I'm going through. I lost my son in a car accident a month later. The husband, which was absolutely normal, good, loving family, committed suicide, which was shock to everyone. Yeah. But now I'm really worried that she's losing, you know, she's losing. She's constantly saying, I want to give up. I don't want to get up. And what if she does something to herself? Yeah, that's, um, you know, and, and I would not, I hope you'll even ask her about that. Uh, I know no, most people. No, I'm very cautious. No, I mean, I'm saying I, w- I hope you would ask her about that. That if you want to do something, are you have you thought about that? You know, people are very afraid to talk about suicide, yeah. uh, and I'm not saying it's the, the next thing you have to tell her, but I, I want you to not be afraid to say that. And it, it's not going to be up to you to handle it. If she is, you'll have to get help. You might, be, you know, if she was actively suicidal, call 911. But people often avoid asking about it because it, it feels like we're not supposed to, it's scary. What yeah, if they say yes? Like, yeah, I never thought about the bringing the subject that. But I constantly tell her that, think about the other son, think about, but what can I say? Think about the dog, think about, you know, you still have yeah. a future ahead of you. Well, I mean, for her. yeah, it's tough because we don't want to obviously emphasize. I mean, what she went through was horrible, undeniably horrible. And so I would empathize with her. I, I, I'm sure you have. But to stay there, that she's going to be down for some time. Now, we're afraid to lose her. And I, that, I think, is critical. It's a crisis here. That if you feel that she could be suicidal, but she, it, it would be odd for her to be okay right now. You know, she she needs to go through this, and I think it's unfortunate what people are doing, which is what they often do. Um, we tell people it was okay, it's God's plan, they are in a better place. Um, all those things that don't help, and it partially is coming from our own inability to tolerate sad feelings and someone else's sad feelings, which makes us feel a certain way. So we think we have to convince them that it was okay. And this is where trying to do too much actually hurts the person. You know, it's like someone has just collapsed and broke all their bones and now we start massaging their body, but their bones are broken. So it's like hurting them. It's not helping them. You need to give them space to heal and recognize they're going to be in pain. That you, you you can't take away that pain. And, and there's nothing other than numbing her with medications and drugs, nothing's going to numb her. She needs to feel this pain. And so learning from what she's telling you that other people have done, you want to make sure you don't do that, that you're not yeah. telling her, 
it's okay. You know, you might at times bring up these things of trying to help her find meaning in her life. You know, that's what we're trying to help her find is this has been devastating, but is there anything still meaningful? And her son probably would be. I mean, think about him and what he would go through if something happened to her. But I would mm -hmm. definitely first start with empathizing with her and what she's going through and staying with her. It's going to be dark for her for a while, and the the desire is to drag her into the light, but you're probably going to have to go into the dark cave with her and sit with her there a lot of the time, which is tough on you, and you have to make sure you're okay also. Can she do it on her own without support of any friends, family, anyone, or in a professional hall? Probably not. On her own. Probably not. I mean, she does need support. I hope, she, you know, it seems like you're someone that she still has, um, that she's at least reaching out to at some level, maybe not seeing. I hope you could see her and be ready. If you go see her, you're going to see her and she's going to be down. And when you leave, she's still going to be down. Well, you know? she refused to see anyone. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm saying if she did. Even when you talk to her, same thing. You're going to call her. Now, maybe then she might feel a little bit better or, you know, whatever the feeling is. She's going to feel bad by the end of the phone call. You're not going to make her feel good. And you don't put that, if you put that pressure on yourself, which is what most people do or they think they're supposed to do, they either avoid or they do too much. Like, oh, I don't know what to do. What am I going to say to her? So they don't want to talk to her. Yeah. Or if they talk to her, say, oh, it was okay. And you know, God wanted your son. And these crazy things that people say that they think makes the person yeah, feel better. Yeah, they, most people do. And actually, most people say that I've looked at some research that at funerals or when people are grieving, they say the problem is actually usually people saying too much rather than too little. Like they say things that bother the person. So just, you know, in statements, it's better to say, I'm sorry for your loss, my condolences, but don't try to justify the pain or make it okay or, you know, give them some wisdom that you think you're going to change their the suffering into something good. That, that usually makes people very frustrated because, you know, they're, they're saying... Um, you're basically minimizing my pain. And those same people that say that to someone, something 100,000 times less bad happened to them and they got upset about it. They didn't just say, oh, it's okay or it's going to be something better. They were, oh, like the, the person is late to come fix the window, you know, and they're getting mad about it. But now this person is dealing with this and they're saying, why are you sad? Um, it really doesn't make sense, but that's what people unfortunately can often do. So I would remove some of the pressure from yourself that I have to, to fix her or fix this. Um, I would, you know, bringing up seeing someone is something you can still mention, but I wouldn't push it too hard. Um, she needs probably someone just to be with her in this process. You know, you're walking a path with her. Unfortunately, the path she's walking on has broken glass and it's hurting every step of the way and you won't feel that pain. But if she has someone with her, it might be more tolerable. So remind yourself that my goal isn't to make her happy or to heal her. My goal and my role here is just to be someone who is by her side so she's not alone going through what will definitely be a painful process. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, I, I hope that we can hold her hand. This is a very really tough time of course. for anybody to lose a child and lose someone yeah. to Suicide is even devastating alone. Yeah, I mean, the, either one of those would have been devastating happening together, you know, even more devastating. And it's not even just double, it's just compounded in so many ways. Because going through it with her husband, it would have been devastating going through the loss of a son and then losing him, right. um, you know. But, you know, yeah, in a way of not pushing her, but it will be important for her to find meaning um, 
in this. You know, even if she wants to, you know, man search for meaning by Viktor Frankl. These things, again, you bring them up as suggestions, not pushing that, oh, you have to read this. Is, you know, she might read it and get nothing out of it. Also, she's hurting so much that I, I would, at this point, probably therapy could help, but at any moment, the person has to be willing and wanting to do it. But oftentimes, after intense traumas, it's too soon to start. So don't keep pushing that's the only option. I hope she eventually will. Um, but if you can still be her friend, that that's a lot. Now, I know you're saying, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, maybe like um, with these uh, grief meetings like CODA or uh, AA, like the people who are going through grief, is there anything like yeah, that? Yeah, there, like- there are a lot of those. I mean, I don't know. I think you said Northern California, and I, I wouldn't know, but the, the ones. Probably but by Zoom, because then yeah. it feels like these people, they understand my pain. Mm-hmm. Because for, for her, us, we don't understand her pain, which is true. Yeah. You don't understand someone's loss unless, unless you lost someone. But maybe if I can find a grief uh, group rather than a therapist, that, you know, that's possible. You know, it's it's definitely something you'll have to, to ask her. But Search for it. Yeah, there are, and there are always, you know, there are a lot of those. Yeah, before it would have to be, you know, you'd go in person, so you might be limited. But even still in Northern California, I'm sure there are many. Um, and as you said yeah, yourself, certain types of pains and experiences, unless we know the other person has gone through it, even though we know still it's going to be different, no two experiences are the same, but there's certain types of pain that only we feel that someone else can relate to if they've been through it. So support groups for grief are actually very helpful for a lot of people because they know that only you know what it's like to go through this. And so when we're talking and someone gives the feedback or advice, it feels a lot more full. It doesn't feel as empty as someone who's like, oh, you know, I think if I lost my child, I would just be grateful for the years I had them. You know, people say things like that, which there might be some truth in that, but you're also going to be devastatingly hurt and you're not only thinking about that you know positive feeling or that glass half full side of it um so that's something you can consider and, and mention it to her say there's also these options where it's not a therapist a shrink that you'll be talking to although sometimes there's a therapist in in those rooms that facilitates the group oftentimes they've been through something like that too sometimes not uh, but that's another option are there other friends or people i know you said she's kind of pushed a lot of people away are there any other people have two sisters that they're not as local but then came to stay with her and mm-hmm. she said i don't want i don't want you to be here so yeah she almost lived alone with the dog which uh, the dog was the responsibility of the husband mm-hmm. it's a big german shepherd dog it's not an easy uh, little dog so yeah and i offered i can come and walk the dog for you but she's refusing she's shutting everyone and she constantly telling me I don't even want to get up off the bed. I have no hope. I have nothing. So it's like mm-hmm. it's really scary. Yeah, that is. Um, and I don't know what your conversations are like or how frequent they are. As I mentioned, I, I wouldn't want you to shy away from bringing up if she would want to hurt herself in some way. I know it could be a scary place to go, um, but it just shows your concern for her. Um, and, you know, I would, I would keep offering to see how you can connect with her, seeing what she's okay with. She might get better in some ways um, over time. I hope she does and might be open to more things. But it, it's a very difficult thing. I think you, you know, as you were saying it, I, I mean, I, I felt it. Again, imagine what we're feeling just hearing the story. For me, hearing the story, you knowing her, um, going through it is just something unimaginable. So uh, I, I hope, 
Yeah, I think her son genuinely is a source of the one that's, you know, still with with us is the one that might be a source of for him. Imagine what he would, you know, you know, go through if something happened to you. Um, actually, he is the, he is acting like a bigger one here. He is acting the most support, and they were very close brothers, very close mm. family in general. Father, the two sons always did a lot of activities, sports together. So this was very devastating because mm. this was just way more normal than a father-son relationship yeah. with buddies. So he is suffering too, but he's the bigger one right now in the relationship. Well, I would be aware of even, you know, I get what you're saying when you say bigger one. And this is something we do. You know, we go to a funeral and we say, oh, you know, uh, one brother was crying and the other brother was not and talking. He's so strong. And, you know, grieving is a complicated thing to say that it's weaker or stronger or bigger or smaller to do something. And, And I get in that, in what you just said, there's probably and understandably a frustration you're having with her of, okay, this is, you know, you have a lot of sympathy, empathy for what she went through, but, you know, in a way you're also like, okay, but do something about it, or why aren't you helping yourself more, you know? Um, So that's something you have to also be aware of, is that you might start to build a, a frustration with her, and this is something that often people can have with someone who's depressed or grieving, in this case it seems like both, uh, we can start to get impatient and frustrated with them. And so I hope you'll also keep checking in with yourself about how you're doing with all this, because it can take a, an emotional toll on you trying to be there for her, trying different things, feeling like you keep yeah. getting rejected by her, pushed away by her. Every time you talk to her, I'm sure it's heavy, you know, what she's going through is so intense. That's something for you to also be aware of, and you know, trying to help take care of someone else. We have to make sure we're taken care of first for your own well-being, but also you can only benefit her in as much as you're o- okay yourself. So um, I- I'm sure there is some frustration. Her son, it seems like you're saying he stepped up in some ways um, to fill some of that void, but I'm sure he is a, a source of meaning for her. But the, the pain is just, it's, it could be too much to bear, and I hope she doesn't get to that point, and I hope you won't be afraid to ask her if that mm-hmm. comes up. Depending on, I don't know what your conversations are like. It's not something I would say just out of the blue ask her, but in a context of if she's talking I about how bad. I often just listen, let okay. her talk. I don't ask yeah. anything to just, because she's very bitter and she always puts me down as, you don't understand, what do you think? Even if I say, let's go have lunch, it's like, do you think what lunch would make my life better? Mm. So it's just like, always I'm just trying to just listen. What's yeah, saying. and you know, that's tough. And yeah, there's that bitterness, that anger is, is there and it's really going to get directed everywhere and you're, you are just trying to help and the fact that she's still talking to you and you're saying she's pushed other people aside probably tells us there's still something she likes about talking to you or likes about you or that you're doing slightly differently um so take that you know to heart too that she's still talking to you but she's still angry and that's what i mean is that you probably leave the conversations like gosh like did i do anything or did did she even liked that. It seems like she was like mad at me a lot of the times, but probably there's something she's getting. Uh, while you also want to look at, okay, what can I do slightly differently, even in how I bring things up? Or when she says, I, you know, I, you could say, you're right, I, have, I don't know. And I really uh, don't know what to say. And I'm really trying to just help um, in whatever way I can. And you can even ask her, you maybe have, is there anything I, you would want for me to do, even in these conversations or in, in any way? And you've suggested things like, walking the dog or doing things, but um, maybe ask her, if you haven't already, what would you like from me or for me to do for you 
if there's anything. Yeah, I think that's a good question for me to ask. So, okay, what yeah. can I do? Okay. You know, ask her what do you you know it's and it's and maybe she'll be able to reason with you with that kind of you know I think she'll get it like what uh, you know what can you do or you don't know what to do no one's equipped no one's equipped to go through it of course what she's going through and then no one's really equipped to know what to say to someone going through it you know and so that's what I meant by putting the pressure off of yourself that you know if I was in your shoes it's not that I would be handling this so easily I would be. I'm sure I would doubt myself. I wouldn't be sure about certain things. Did I say that right? What can I say? Did I push too hard? Did I not do enough? It, it's a tough thing that you're, you know, going through, um, trying to help someone who went through something incredibly tough and unimaginable. But I hope you'll continue with that and keep, you know, we have to pay attention to what we're going through in order to be there for someone else because you might start to get frustrated at the point where you push her away too. And I hope you'll recognize that just being in the dark cave with her even if you're silent, even if you're just there, that's better than nothing. And sometimes that's the best we can offer. And we can only offer what someone is willing to accept. And so I would keep making these uh, connections and you know, reaching out and suggesting things, asking things in a, in a subtle way. You don't want to push too hard and then see what she's receptive to. And there might be space more and more to, to be even more helpful or to help her help herself more as she's feeling more capable. And you can even resonate, if you can, with that empathize with that anger. I understand you're right. This, I, I can't even imagine what you're going through. It's, it's so unfair. There's no way to explain or justify what you went through. Um, and so don't try to convince her she shouldn't be mad or there's good in the world or any of those things. Uh, empathizing with her pain is probably going to help her more than trying to convince her the pain isn't real or, or she shouldn't feel it. Thank you so much, Doctor. I really appreciate it. I, I got good points on it. I hope. Well, you know, you know, the feeling I'm having with you—it's—it's it's like a fraction of what I feel you go through. My my thought right now is like, I hope I was helpful to you, and I'm sure that when yes. you talk to her, you you have that feeling strongly, and I can understand. So, uh, obviously, wish the very very best for her, and I'm I'm so sad to hear about what she went through, and I also uh, wish you the best, and I hope you can be helpful to her as well. Thank you very much. I appreciate Thank you. Your nice talking to you. Take care. Okay, let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Um, you know, the previous caller still thinking about that that situation and how heartbreaking uh, it was just to hear it, imagining what it, only can imagine what it's like to go through it. Um, and so it makes me think more about this very scary topic of death that we tend to avoid or try to avoid in life until we face it. It just pops its head up because part of life is death uh, and how, how we deal with it. And so relating it even to what I've talked about today, when we look at human psychology from an evolutionary perspective, we value relationships so much because we are at birth very dependent and then uh, at least continue to be interdependent and needing one another and we build these strong bonds and we feel these strong emotions because we need to be drawn together to enjoy being together uh, to survive because we need to have those relationships sometimes when we do this i think people feel like it demystifies or takes away the romanticism to say it's evolutionary or we try to explain in the brain what's going on when you feel something it, it seems like it takes away something magical but i don't think it does you know those the, everything we experience happens 
uh, in our brains as far as what we, we feel. And it doesn't make it less special or less good. It's just understanding it more. Or I think it's funny sometimes when people talk about topics and they want to undermine something, they'll say feelings are, well, it's just something happening in your brain. Or love is just something in the brain. We shouldn't make it a big deal. But then everything you experience is in your brain. If you enjoy, you know, let's say making money, that's something happening in your brain. If you enjoy doing something else, it's something you experience in your brain. Nothing really we, we experience happens outside of that. So, but when you understand what we, um, who we are as, as human beings, and we're so social and we're so affected by one another, this is part and parcel of what it means to be alive as a human being is to care about others and then to care very strongly for the relationships that we build. We feel this emotional connection and bond that makes it hurtful, painful when those bonds are broken, whether it's some kind of relationship ends for some reason or through the ultimate breaking of death, which we inevitably will experience in our lives. Uh, and it's because of how beautiful it feels that it hurts so much. And so when people say, don't be sad after someone dies, to me, it doesn't really make sense to not be sad at all. To me, it's not even natural or not healthy to not feel pain or sadness after losing a relationship in a smaller scale compared to death, but it could be similar. Sometimes when people break up, they say, oh, you know, we, I broke up after this two-year relationship. I didn't even cry. I wasn't even sad when we broke up. And I'm very, very sorry to hear that. If you are not sad after a breakup, something is not right there. And I'm sorry for you. Either you are hiding your current feelings of sadness, which is not good for you, and I'm sorry to hear that. Or you never let yourself feel close to that person you're in a relationship with so that losing it was not very painful. So it was your weakness that makes you not cry, not your strength that makes you not cry now. So when we create a relationship, we would hope that it's meaningful enough that losing it would hurt, which is true of life in other ways too. You have a career, you do work, you do something, and you would hope that you create something that losing it does hurt you. It does feel bad because it has some meaning. And in general, the good that we feel, sometimes people say, well, you have to, you know, have the rain to enjoy the sunshine, which there's some truth to that. But it's also that when we experience something, uh, as good as it can make you feel, essentially it has to be able to make you feel that bad as well. So uh, we also hear this with things like people's words. So if someone gives you compliments, like, oh, gosh, thank you so much. It feels very nice to hear your compliment. But then if someone says something mean, people say, well, you shouldn't care what people say. Well, you can't have it both ways. You can't not care what people say if it's something bad, but somehow feel good when they say something good to you. You can't have that. You have to be able to have both. Now, of course, we sometimes feel too good when they say something good and then get too bad. That's something to look at. But you can't just have one and not the other. I can't say uh, my arm, I want to feel the nice touch of a friend, but I don't want to be able to feel any pain. If you numb my arm, it's numb from the pleasure and the pain. And so if we accept that we're going to embrace life, which involves pleasure and pain, good and bad, anything you experience that is good could come with the risk of some kind of hurt, either within that domain or losing that thing then that's part of life that we have to accept and embrace. I'm going to create relationships 
that will feel very good, that I'll feel very close to those people, knowing that with any good relationship comes the risk of the pain that comes from losing it. And, I, you know, there's that Shakespeare, it's better to have loved and lost than not have loved at all. And I think that's just not about romantic love, but it's about relationships in general. It's better to have had relationships and then lost them for whatever reasons and in whatever ways that has happened than to have not had them at all. And I think that's living a full life is when we face it head on that I'm going to experience all of the good, which means I have to be open to experiencing the bad. There's no other way to live life. Either you can minimize the good that you experience and you might have less pain in certain ways. There'll still be pains and inevitably death. You can do that. That's a choice. But I would advise all of us, myself included, to look at life as something that if we want to live it fully, that means exposing ourselves to the good and the bad. There's no other way. You want to fall in love? Beautiful. It can be one of the most beautiful experiences and feelings you can have. But you have to be willing to understand that that risk is there of losing it in a variety of ways. From that person can hurt you and betray you, which is very, very painful, or you can lose them um, to death or some other way as well, or the relationship could end, could turn bad, lots of things can happen. You're opening yourself up to that. But you can never experience the beautiful feeling unless you're willing to experience or at least be open to the risk of facing that negative thing. And so in our relationships, that's what we're creating. A child is born, their parents create this incredibly close bond with them. And in essence, we know the relationship can last only so long. It won't last forever. Uh, as I said that, I've thought of when people have dogs. Now, it's not exactly the same, but sometimes people will say, well, I don't want to have a dog because at some point I know it's going to die. Um, and now we know that lifespan is a shorter than the human lifespan, all things uh, being equal as far as everyone living uh, equal uh, a lengthy life for their species. And so that's like I'm opening myself up to pain. And I can understand that in a way, but I don't think that that's the way we should approach life. Yes, there's a give and take. If you're going to do something that's going to devastate you in a short amount of time, there can be some ways of looking at that. But in general, my approach to life is that we look at what can I enjoy in meaning, not in pleasure and just hedonistically, but creating the meaningful enjoyments of life recognizing that what will come with all of them is the risk of, of being hurt. So the baby is born, there's this beautiful bond that's being created, and yet we can say, is it bittersweet? Is it beautiful? What is it that somehow, some way, this relationship will end? Every relationship ends in some way. That's just part of life, and every life ends at some point. Something that I think I'll talk about in the next segment as well. We try not to think about these things because they're painful and we don't know how to really make sense of them because we really can't in a lot of ways. But I think if we don't recognize that true value or that true meaning of death, we don't recognize a true value and true meaning of life. And that while you're here for this time, that's not guaranteed how long it will be and you don't know how long it will be. Hopefully you will create the most beautiful experiences that you can and the most beautiful relationships that you can with this one life that you have been given. Let's go to a commercial break and I'll continue the discussion. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the previous segment, I was talking about some issues related to 
relationships and also death and, and living a meaningful life. And as I mentioned in the last segment, if you don't recognize death, you won't live a meaningful life. Or if you don't recognize the true meaning or significance that death is inevitable, you won't value your life enough to live it to the fullest. Because we tend to have this mindset that we're going to live forever. Now, you ask anyone that, they say, of course not. I know I'm not going to live forever. But we operate in that way. And that's partially because to deal with our fear of even facing death anxiety, we go to this place of denial and avoidance that it's not even real. It's a lot easier to think you're never going to die than to think about it. Now, we don't have to be preoccupied with it, and I might touch on that in talking about regret and how that relates to death anxiety. Um, so you don't have to be obsessed with death to live life, but you have to recognize it's there, to recognize you won't have forever. Because going back to earlier about survival mode and trying something new, breaking out of your comfort zone, we tend to have this feeling that, well, I can, I'll, I'll do it later. There's always the sense that there's always a later available for us to do whatever it is we want to do, the ideas that, that come to our mind, the desires, the wishes, the dreams. I'll always have a later to do it. Why would I start now? And then again, one of the things I like how we convince ourselves, we're, we'll say, oh, you know, there's, I'm not ready yet, or I got to get prepared, or it's not good to rush into it and mess it up. But these are all excuses we make because we're afraid to face that uncertainty. And so unfortunately, this death anxiety, this fear of even facing it, can make us not take our lives seriously enough and not value it enough. You don't value your life enough if you don't recognize death as inevitable. And so we want to be aware of this tendency we have to, to avoid facing it because it makes us avoid living uh, our lives. Um, when I read Irvin Yalom's book and his wife Marilyn Yalom's book last year, Matter of Death and Life, uh, he mentioned a few times in that book, Irvin Yalom, how he sees death anxiety as correlated or commensurate to your regrets in life. The more you regret not living a full life and the things you didn't do, the more you fear death, the more you're afraid of facing death, the sense that I didn't make good use of my time. I didn't value it enough in a way that I wish I, I had. And so the more that we do the things that we want to do and we get rid of those regrets, the less death anxiety you'll face. You feel like you lived your life fully and you can come to acceptance of that, come to terms with that. Now, looking at death anxiety, it's a uh, pretty major existential experience for humans that we have this fear of death. Um, and it's nothing that we can just make disappear. But I think there's some things to, to think about when it comes to understanding death anxiety and some ways that our human psychology, ways that it serves us in many ways, actually backfires in this way. So when we have death anxiety, sometimes people think, well, what happens after? And of course we can't know. Um, so some people, you might have a belief of an afterlife, which usually is quite lovely, unless you are bad, depending on your religion, then it might not be so lovely, but usually it's something good. Or you believe that that's it, and it ends. Um, now, the thing is, when people think it just ends, what usually, imagine even me, when I think of you know, death, and then we think, okay, let's say nothing happens. What do you imagine? So I want you to think of that, okay? So we say you die, and then we say there is no afterlife. What do you see? Or what what is it that comes to you? And I even said see, which might give the, the you know, 
kind of the answer that I'm thinking away, but I think most people, what they imagine is just like a blackness, a darkness. But that itself is you're seeing something. It might seem strange to think that, but that's still seeing something. So here's where our human psychology or the only way we can really think of things when we especially are trying to imagine another person or imagine a future is that we have to, of course, feel now what we think we would feel in that situation or we're using our feeling now, right? And we even do this with animals. So we say, I wonder what it's like to be a frog. Well, we imagine us as ourselves now and how we experience things, but in the frog body, jumping around and doing what it is to be a frog. But being a frog has its own qualia, its own experience, a qualitative type of experience that's unique. So we can't be me being a frog. If I'm a frog, I'm already something else. And so when we imagine being dead, we imagine being alive but being dead. Not a zombie, but I'm trying to experience it, me as alive, imagining what it's like to feel dead. Well, when we think of being dead, you won't feel anything or see anything or experience anything you're ceasing to exist, but we can't imagine what it's like to cease to exist because I'm just here existing and feeling things and thinking and going through all those experiences. So I think one of the challenges we face or one of the reasons we can feel so scared of death is that we think of what it would be like to be dead. But if you're not feeling anything, you're not feeling anything. It's just impossible for us to really be able to experience that or to really get what that means. So that's what I mean when I say Death is something we can't quite understand. And this is why people feel so perplexed by it when they even lose someone. It feels so surreal. It's hard for us to understand something existing and then not existing. We're talking about a person. Um, Now, what is added to the complication of when we're thinking of someone else being dead is that our experience of them still is alive. So even when we interact with people that are alive, the experience is happening within me, even though you're physically, let's say, in the same space as me, it's still happening within me. And let's say if I'm thinking about my loved one, even if they're not around, I just, I still have an experience of them. Now, let's say they're alive, but they're not around. Now, if they're dead, what's the difference? They're just also not around, but they can't come back. I can't physically see them again. But my relationship with them, my connection with them is the same, just like essentially My way of relating them was internal. If they're gone, it's still internal. And so this is what can feel so weird is I can still feel you. I can still feel the person who is not there. My grandmother passed away last June. I can still feel what it was like to be around her. I can reflect on memories uh, of being with her. I can hear the sound of her voice to a degree. This is something that actually people often um, can feel really sad. What if I, I, I forget the sound of their voice or I forget what their face looked like? Because it feels like we're losing them more and more when that memory fades. They really no longer exist. Physically, they're no longer here. But what if I lose them in my brain, in my head? That feels painful. And in that way, I can't bring them back. Because see, when I think about them, I'm bringing them back. Not only is it they survive in this way of like they're not dead, but my experience of them is still alive. And so people can have this surreal feeling of like, I know he or she is gone physically, but I still feel like they're here. And that feels weird. And we think, oh, am I crazy? Is there something wrong with me? Or I'm being irrational. But it's none of those things. Your experience of anyone all the time is happening within you. And just because the person is no longer here doesn't mean you no longer have feelings or those experiences. I actually also think this is relevant 
when people talk about um, ghosts or having, you know, this presence or someone is there, uh, I think it's a similar thing that is happening. So uh, when we interact with anyone, I like to think of this term of an emotional signature. There's a way they make you feel, which is a very complex thing because it's not just one thing. It also might change. You just had a fight with this person. You have a lot of memories and a lot of things, but also there's a tinge of negativity on it, especially right now. You just had a very pleasant experience with that person. It feels even more positive right now. Um, but it's really this sum total of your experiences of them and with them creates this emotional signature which is the way you feel. So I show you a picture of your loved one and you have this feeling or all these feelings that come up. And really it's going to be mixed. Mostly let's say it's good, but there's going to be these, uh, you know, um, frayed parts of it or other things as well. This emotional signature is not going to be purely one thing, but it's actually this unique thing. So each person leaves their emotional signature on you. And so now when the person has passed away, they're no longer physically with us, the emotional signature can still get triggered in different ways. Uh, going back to our mind as a predicting machine, it's not clear. Maybe you do see a picture of them or something. Maybe a smell reminds you of them. Maybe you hear something that reminds you of them. Maybe you're in part of your house that you actually spent time with that person and that experience is coming back to you now in some way. And so that emotional signature is being triggered and now you feel it. And you're like, oh God, I, I feel their presence is here. I feel that they're maybe in this room or somehow they're with me right now. And yes and no, they're not physically there in any different way. And there doesn't have to be a ghost there. I can't definitively say there's not ghosts, but I'm giving an explanation that might make some sense of some of what we experience. So they don't have to physically be there, just like before they didn't have to physically be there. If you thought about your best friend who was a thousand miles away, you wouldn't think, oh, I'm feeling them here. It must mean their ghost is here or their spirit is here. Even that I think is actually when we talk about spirits in that way or we feel someone's spirit, it's what we feel within us relating to that person, which is all we can ever do. So coming back to your loved one that you think you feel their presence, a ghost must be there. You're feeling what they make you feel. You're feeling what you feel in their presence emotionally, even if they aren't physically there or metaphysically there or whatever you want to call it, you are still having that experience of being with them. So I think often what people feel, because they say it feels so real, and they're right, they're feeling what they feel when they were with that person or how that person makes them feel. But it doesn't mean they have to physically be there in some way or in this ghost type of way be there either. It's just in the relating that we, we feel that they're there. So our understanding of, of life and death, of something existing and not existing, is really not good. Even when we try to think of, okay, there's an unborn child, what would that be like to see that child? Or the reverse, we didn't want this child and now the child is here. And you maybe have had that experience. I've seen that before myself. And it could be this strange thing that I didn't want you to exist or so-and-so didn't want you to exist or we didn't know if it would be a good idea for you to exist. But now you're here and I love you and I want to give you love and take care of you. And it's so hard because you really can't. How do you imagine something not existing that you now see? You might try to feel it and it feels empty because there's spaces now, you know, there's a space where they are now, but you can't really get that. And this is kind of... For me, why when we think of how we treat one another, if something exists and is a feeling being, 
we should treat them with love and care and take care of them and not make them feel bad in whatever ways that we can. Once they're there, if they're not there, obviously we can't do anything about it. But once something is a living being, they're worthy of love and respect and being treated with kindness rather than being hurt uh, in some way. So these are difficult things for us to grapple with because I think our minds are not able to really figure them out. When we think about being dead, we think about it in our living bodies and brains. And so because of that, it's limited. We can't imagine what it's like to be in some other state like that, especially a state like death, where if you're feeling nothing, what does nothing feel like? If you imagine nothing again, usually it's darkness or blackness or something. That's not nothing. That's still something. Um, And when it comes to death anxiety, it's something that uh, comes up in almost everyone's life. You're going to experience some of this, and it's not a simple thing. And I know in, in some of what I'm sharing today, it can come off that I'm saying it's this easy thing to deal with. No, it does usually make people feel some very intense types of things, um, but I hope you will face it rather than avoid it, because avoiding it usually means not living your life fully. If you don't accept the value of your death, you won't live the full value of your life. That brings us to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. back. So in this last segment, as I say goodbye to you for today only, um, I wanted to talk about goodbyes, which are a very, very painful part of life and relates to what I was talking about before, about relationships and how they inevitably end in some way. I know it's a depressing way to think of it like that, but someone dies or you die at the same time, maybe like the the old couple on Titanic in the movie. But in some way, relationships end, which is pretty heartbreaking. Another thing we don't like to think about, we have this feeling that they're going to go on forever. And goodbyes are very, very difficult. Uh, I feel that myself very deeply. I always remember I did not like goodbyes from a young age, saying bye to family after being with them for a while even, or for if it was going to be for a longer time. It's a very painful thing, but it is a, a part of life that we have to accept, that we have to be open to facing even if it is is painful. How do we handle goodbye? And, and to me, when we look at how some people approach this, it's like how they approach a lot of life, is we think, well, minimize bad feelings, try to feel good, and how do you just move on? Even sometimes I disagree with on research that I see in certain aspects of psychology where um, they'll look at something, I'll say, well, grieving happened this way and these people felt better after this many months, so it, this must be the right program or this treatment or this technique. And of course, we do want to try to understand what makes people feel good and, and happy I'm definitely not anti-happiness, but I don't see it as just the ultimate goal that if someone is going through a breakup or the death of a loved one, we just look at like who got, who felt better faster as uh, the solution or as that's what we should be striving for. And so sometimes in research, I've seen that, that that seems to be the measure rather than there is something bigger to me of healing and growing through what you go through that's more valuable than people who feel okay or feel good or feel happy. As I was saying before, you know, you can go through a breakup and some people might feel better 
the next day. I wouldn't say, oh, those are the good people. Let's learn from them how to be. That's telling me something is missing either in their connection with their feelings or in how they connected with the other person and the type of relationship and the closeness they allowed themselves to feel for that person. So some people just think goodbye is about feeling okay as soon as they can. And that could be a motto for life. And it's understandable we don't like to feel bad. Obviously, it feels bad. And so we tend to avoid that, but not realizing that if we live a life just focused on avoiding bad feelings, we're going to live a very, very meaningless life with very little to show of it. Anything you achieved meant you worked hard, you delayed gratification, you put yourself in a situation where what you're doing was not the most pleasurable thing at the moment to achieve something bigger. And the same thing is true in relationships and all aspects of life. So we can't let just feeling good be our guide, even though as a biological organism, we are in some ways drawn that way. And that's why it's so hard to resist doing what feels good in the moment, because there's such a strong drive for that. There's a feeling that says this feels good now. It's hard to create an equally powerful feeling of that something in the future will be good for you and you're going to feel good. And this is, I think, one of the challenges we face as human beings trying to live a meaningful life, trying to uh, meet our potential, trying to do things that will make us feel good in the long run is there's such a strong pull to doing what feels good in the moment, that homeostatic type of rebalancing that is going on. So it's understandable that we are pushed in that way, but it's something we ought to resist to recognize that the value is not in just feeling okay, the value is in going through what we need to go through, healing and growing. It's like if we saw people that fell down and we just measured how fast they started running again. Now that could be good, but it could be that some of them are running too soon and they're damaging something more significant down the line. They still haven't fully healed and they're starting to run. So if we just focus on one factor and say, this is what um, is going to tell us what's good or bad, I think we're missing something. So with goodbyes, we have this feeling, and I hear this a lot, of, well, I didn't cry when we broke up, or comparing who was sad longer after a breakup. And in our obsession at times of like who's winning and losing and comparing, we think, well, well, this person is still sad and that person's dating someone. So the one that's dating someone, they're winning. You know, people even will literally use the, those words. They're winning the breakup. Um, and we don't know, is that person healed and now is creating a good relationship? Or was it a rebound because they don't want to face the pain of grieving. And so in that instance, when we see a picture of, you know, a celebrity couple that broke up and now we see one of them has a new partner and they're walking on the street, holding hands, looking glamorous and good. And we see the other one, maybe they find some picture of them looking bad or crying or, you know, not looking so good. Like, oh, well, look at that. How can you deny that one of them is winning and losing? But healing is not always pretty and looking good is not always genuine and is not actually being authentic. So when you go through a goodbye, I hope you will feel sad. I hope you will grieve the loss of that relationship. I know I had one recently, a type of uh, relationship that had to end, and it was very painful. I was very sad. I cried. I listened to some sad music uh, that made me feel sad, but not, I wanted to feel sadder, but it allowed me to connect even more deeply with my feeling and felt like the mood I had. I think, you know, when people post things online, you know, they put hashtag mood. There's something about that. There's a way when you just connect and resonate with something, it feels right. It feels good. Um, but I felt sad 
and I was reflecting on the good parts of what I'd experienced and, and what I could learn from it as well. But I recognized that the sad feelings were because something I experienced was something nice and that the, the person that I was able to have that connection with was something very valuable. So it wasn't something in overall for me to feel bad about, even though it was painful while I was going through it. So I hope you will allow yourself to feel bad and to feel sad if you're going through a breakup of some kind or losing a loved one or having to say goodbye to someone, recognizing that mourning is the price that we pay for having loving relationships. Grieving is the price we pay for having loving relationships. That's something that we must be willing to embrace and to face when, when that happens. And so when we have a goodbye, I think it's also good to try to learn from it. Now, the learning often, some of it can happen while you're really feeling a lot. But when you're in pain, your head is still spinning a bit and your head is still trying to make sense of the pain. You're, in this sense, actually are surviving more. You're surviving, licking your wounds, trying to heal what's going on. So often you might not be able to learn things. And so even with people in therapy, sometimes they'll, you know, had a breakup or some kind of relationship ends. And in therapy, right afterwards, there is more of the focusing on the pain and the feelings that are there and trying to get in touch with those. And I even might mention to them that there's going to be lessons to be learned from this as in all experiences, but especially more meaningful ones and significant ones. Um, but it might not be time yet, or you might not have the perspective yet. You know, when people break up, we've all been there. You, you sometimes will say things that, especially in hindsight, sound very irrational, but they point to the state you're in there. You know, sometimes people say, oh, you know, you're going to find someone else. And oh, I don't want to find anyone else. I don't want to be with anyone else but them, you know, even though the relationship wasn't working out or something's happened. Or they'll say, oh, you're going to forget about uh, forget about them and you won't even remember them. It's like, I don't want to ever forget them. You know, that's the feeling we have, which we can understand we're so still attached to them and have that feeling of attachment. Being detached from them feels like death. So forgetting them doesn't feel good which sounds strange because if you're having so much pain remembering them, people looking at you is like, well, why don't you forget them? But this is, again, where healing is not necessarily about what feels most good in that moment. It's about going through the process of healing, which generally involves some, some pain. So, yeah, we'll say those, what, especially, like I said, in hindsight, if you think about it now, what you felt then, you're like, gosh, what was I saying back then? Or what was I feeling to think I never wanted to forget them or I never wanted to be with anyone else? You often think about it and you're like, oh, it was actually not even that good. But when we're feeling attached, we feel dependent. Going back to this tendency of humans, we have this dependency growing up. You feel like you're going to die without them. That's why it feels that way. That's why it's not just like, oh, I can replace them with someone else. And that's why relationships have value. We don't just feel like, oh, well, this is my husband or wife today. And tomorrow, if it's that person, it's another person. It feels equally the same. There's something about relating to that person and what you created with them that makes it so it just can't be replaced by uh, by something else, someone else. It's not going to be changed in that way. So when you're going through it at first, you might not be able to understand the lessons because there's probably things that you can learn about yourself. Who are you attracted to? Who is it that you find yourself in relationships with? And I, I say find yourself, but taking a more active role of who am I creating relationships with? Because when you tell people things like, 
you know, last three people you dated all ended up being a certain way. Do you think you're drawn to those kinds of people? Say, oh, no, like, there's no way for me to know, for example, that they would all have drinking problems um, because, like, I didn't know at the beginning, which is true because no one on the first date advertises uh, their qualities they don't really like, especially something like addiction. They don't show up to the first date stumbling drunk. They probably present themselves very nicely. But our unconscious can feel certain things or picks up on things that we are not aware of, and you feel like, oh, Something feels right about this person. Something feels attractive about this person. And unfortunately, the things that often feel most right and most attractive to us are the most unhealthy things because they're about our childhood wounds and things that we're trying to heal, parts of our past that we are trying to work through or resolve. Um, as Jung said, uh, you know, if you are unaware of your unconscious, you'll go through your whole life recreating your past thinking that it's fate. I'm definitely not quoting it directly, but that's essentially the the theme is that if you don't realize what you've been through and how it's affected you and affected the things that you're doing, the things that feel right and feel wrong, um, the same things will keep happening to you. And you'll say, well, it's just my luck, my luck. I keep dating women like this, men like this, people like this. But it's not about luck. It's like looking at, well, what am I doing here? How am I choosing these people? How am I getting attracted to and how am I attracting these kinds of people? And then also, how was I in the relationship? Um, what did I do that I think was good? What did I do that actually I think was not good? And actually I can learn, wow, I was doing this and this. That's not good. I, I don't want to do that. That's not good for my future relationship and relationships. I don't want to be that kind of a person or do that. That's on me and I can grow from that. Also, what did I like and not like about the person I was with? Um, especially at some points you might make it all bad or all good. You know, they were the most evil person or still they're the most amazing person. I can't believe I don't have them. But once you have a little bit of time, you can also look at that. Or, you know what? They, they really did this and did that. And I really value that. And I still want that in a partner. But, you know, there was this that they would do that I definitely realized I can't live with that or that's not going to be good for me or brings out a bad side in me. It's not even necessarily a good or bad quality, but for me, it's a bad quality. And so I want to learn from that. So there's a lot that you can learn, but when the wounds are still bleeding, you can't learn from the fall. First, you have to attend to the wounds and, and heal them to at least to some degree to make at least the bleeding stop. Then you can try to learn your lessons. So in a breakup, you probably won't learn so much right when it's happening because you're still attending to those wounds that are still bleeding and hurting so much. And you need to take care of that first. Give yourself some space, give yourself some time, knowing that what you feel today won't be what you necessarily feel tomorrow or in a week or in a month. Also, it could be good to remember that healing is not linear, meaning that, yes, over time you'll get better, but it doesn't mean that every day will necessarily be better than the day before. People often will have these experiences like, oh, you know, I'm feeling better. I feel like I'm getting over it. And then the next morning they wake up and it's almost like they're back at the beginning and they're like, uh-oh. Does this mean I'm never going to heal? I'm never going to get better? No, not necessarily. This is part of healing is that it's kind of like a, a upward trending line, let's say, if we're talking about feeling better, but it's not that every day it's just a straight line, kind of like a you know, stock market or cryptocurrency. If you're following those things, you'll see ups and downs, but let's say overall an upward trend, but you'll have some down days and that's okay. So healing won't be linear. Another thing I often mention is people sometimes think, well, will there ever be a day I don't think about this person? 
because at the beginning you're just obsessed with them still after the breakup and you're thinking about them every single day, um, day after day, minute after minute, hour after hour, and you're like, there's no way there will ever be a day I stop thinking about them. But um, the funny thing is that the day you don't think about them for that full day, you won't realize it because obviously if you think about them, you're thinking about them. So what will happen is you'll think about them every day, every day, every day, maybe a little bit less. Then one day you won't think about them. You might not realize it. And then maybe the next day or maybe a few days later, they'll come to your mind again. You're like, oh, I hadn't thought about them for a few days, which is kind of a funny thing because, again, you can't experience it when it happens. A lot of victories, we feel it when it happens. This one, you can't realize it till after it's happened that, oh, I guess I'm thinking about them less because I hadn't thought about them for two days, whereas before I did think about them every day. But nonetheless, coming back to the, the experience of it, it's painful because you had something meaningful and good. It's painful because as human beings, we value relationships. We're dependent on relationships. We're social beings. And so that's the most beautiful feeling we can have is being in relationships and the relationships we have in our lives. But it's also the biggest pains we can experience as well. Anything that makes us feel a certain amount of good can make us feel a certain amount of bad. But it doesn't mean it's not worth continuing to risk and continuing to put ourselves out there because that's how we live a meaningful life. Exposing ourselves to the meaningful things, knowing that they expose our, us to the risks as well. All right, that brings us to the end of today's show. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful day.